What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. One of the hosts of the podcast. My name is Kyle Dabra. What's going on, everybody? Kevin Valentin here on the half of the podcast. Dude, what a weekend so far for playoff basketball. Kevin, the NBA playoffs that we've seen so far, granted it's only been game one of all of these series, but they've been nothing short of phenomenal. And okay, we got a boatload of games to go through. So you ready to dive into these topics? Couldn't wait. Could not be happier. All right, so we're going to go through a couple of the games that stood out in particular from this past weekend. Uh, there were a lot of games to go over. We're going to focus on the ones that really stood out from the most. And the first one that we're going to go over is the uh, Celtics and the Nets. Phenomenal game in the Eastern Conference playoffs and a game-winning shot from Jason Tatum at the end of the game gives Boston a uh, early series lead of 1-0. So we'll dive into that game a little bit. We'll talk about the Celtics and just how tough they were in that game one win. After that, despite in a losing effort, Kyrie Irving was phenomenal in that game one performance against Boston. So we'll talk about his performance. And also he gets a little reunion every time he goes back to Boston and uh, Boston definitely had it. So after that, we'll transition to the Western Conference side of things. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the, the T-Wolves and their impressive game one win over the two-seeded Memphis Grizzlies. I think that kind of caught people off guard. It certainly did with me. Uh, we'll talk about the T-Wolves, their game one win, and then we'll talk about how they can take that into game two. After that, we'll talk about the Golden State Warriors after they just demolished the Denver Nuggets in game one of their series. We'll just talk about who stood out the most from the Warriors in that game one win over Denver. After that, we'll kick it back to the Eastern Conference for a little bit. But Trey Young did not have his best game against the Miami Heat in game one of their series. Memory serves me correct. He scored eight points against Miami in a blowout loss. I mean, Miami dominated that game from beginning to end, and Trey was really nowhere to be found. So we'll talk about the impact of uh, Trey's subpar performance in game one and whether or not it's a sign of things to come for him and the Hawks moving forward. After that, we'll kick it over to the NFL for a little bit. We'll talk about Kevin's team a little bit. We'll talk about the Colts. Uh, they signed Stephon Gilmore to a two-year deal. They add a uh, all-pro cornerback to their secondary to go alongside with Darius Leonard, also DeForest Buckner on their front four. So the Colts' defense is definitely rounding into form, and we'll talk about just the impact that Gilmore brings to the Colts' defense as a whole. But that's what we have on the slate. Let's not waste any more time. Uh, let's dive into these playoff games, and the first one we're going to go over is the Celtics, like we just mentioned. So the Celtics had a thrilling game one win over the Brooklyn Nets. They won by the score of 115 to 114. They were able to cash in on a Jason Tatum game-winning bucket at the end of regulation. It was a great game from beginning to end. Uh, Boston was up throughout most of the game. Brooklyn came back in the fourth quarter. Brooklyn had a fantastic fourth quarter performance that really made it competitive at the end of the game. But the Celtics were able to find a way to get the bucket that they needed at the end of regulation to give them a 1-0 series lead going into game two. Now, Kevin, to kick this one to you, what did the Celtics win in game one prove to you, just looking at it from a bigger perspective? So, I mean, dude, I watched this game for the majority of the game. It, it was incredible. And I mean, like, each team had their own respective run. Um, each team had their own respective uh, crazy shots, incredible moments, um, game-changing situational moments. And, of course, you know, Boston gets that win at the end of regulation. But 
Dude, when you look at it as a as a standpoint from Boston, they had so many contributors on this team. I mean, obviously Jason Tatum leads the way with 31 points. Jalen Brown has a, a resurgent second half after starting off slow, scores 23. Marcus Smart has 20. Al Horford has 20 and 15. I mean, every single person contributed that needed to participate in this game, and, and each of them made good shots. And I'm just going to say, for Boston, this was a big win because Brooklyn was surging in that fourth quarter and took quite the lead and went on their own individual run. And I, if I'm being honest with you, Kyrie kind of took his took the ball into his own hands and, and went on a run of his own, but we'll talk about Kyrie later. Um, in terms of Boston, man, we all know that Jason Tatum is going to get his shots. We all know that he's going to get his looks. We know that he's going to lead this team and probably guard one of the better people uh, – on this team, or should I say, he's going to guard one of the better people on Brooklyn. But I love the fact that all of the Celtics are up for the challenge. We all know that Marcus Smart, gritty defensive player. We all know that Jalen Brown, a very good two-way player. Jason Tatum has emerged as a, as a very good defender uh, this year. And it showed in that final possession when he guarded Kevin Durant to uh, force that miss in the final uh, seconds before uh, Boston goes down the court and makes that shot to win the game. But we're looking at this from a whole and I'm saying Boston's defense is what stood out to me. And I know that Kyrie and KD had their games and their moments and their shots. They looked absolutely incredible. But, you know, key situational defensive moments and pivotal aspects to force a miss or make a shot contested or make it a little bit more complicated. That's why Boston's the number one defending team uh, in the NBA. That's why they're uh, ranked so highly in defensive efficiency ratings. That is why they are just known to be regarded as one of the more tougher, gritty teams in these playoffs. And it showed in the final couple of possessions to where Boston needed a stop. They went out and got it. And the ball movement really just showed that Boston's chemistry overall was able to provide and, you know, show the weakness that is Brooklyn. And Brooklyn's weakest attribute is stopping the ball. So, I mean, uh, I thought this was a great game for Boston as a team. I thought it was good for uh, for them to get back into it the way that they did. We all know that they struggled last year to kind of you know get any actual uh, headway in the series last year. They did get a win, but it took place. Jason Tatum to drop 50 for that to happen. And, uh, you know, it didn't have to be that way this year, uh, the, so far this year after game one. And uh, the Celtics were able to kind of wheel the band back together, kind of control the wave that was the Nets run later in the fourth. And uh, they got the dub, man. Last second or not, a win's a win. And this is how you start a, a, a playoff run. This is how you make a statement in the postseason. And I think that Boston did the right thing. And, uh, Dude, man, what a game overall. Kudos to Boston for real. It was a, it was a tough fought fourth quarter. I mean, overall, you know, when it comes to game ones, I don't put a lot of stock in these game ones uh, when it comes to any playoff series. Just because typically, you know, each team is trying to figure out each other, really trying to find certain weaknesses in each other's games and then trying to exploit those weaknesses, not only just in game one, but in the subsequent games that are going to come throughout the rest of the series. But I have to say this, just looking at this from Boston's perspective, they really impressed me. And it's like you said, Kev, their toughness is really what stood out to me. And not only that, their ability to handle adversity was tested in this game, but they came through in flying colors at the end. And that's what really kind of stood out to me as well. Because when I look at this kind of like from more of a team perspective, because I mean, we could talk about, you know, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, what they did offensively. I mean, all of them were able to put up um, over 20 points in this game one win over the Nets. But when you look at the box score from both teams, it would almost kind of lead you to 
it would lead you to believe that the Nets won this game because the Nets had a higher field goal percentage. They shot 53% from the field compared to Boston's 47. Behind the three-point line, Brooklyn shot a higher field goal percentage behind the three-point line at 45% compared to Boston's 36%. And then the free throw percentage was split even at 79%. But when you dive into these box score totals a little bit deeper, you really see where Boston got the edge. And when I look at this box score, the fact that Boston was able to rebound much more effectively than Brooklyn is really what stood out to me. Brooklyn got out-rebounded, got out-rebounded by 14 rebounds, 43-29. to 29. And the amount of second-chance points that Boston was able to get, that's substantial because you get those second-chance points, and you're taking possessions away from Brooklyn in that case, and you're able to capitalize on your first missed shot but then get it on the second or even third one. And not only that, when I look at just the interior presence that Boston was able to establish, not just in spurts of the game, but throughout the entirety of the game, that's what really stood out to me as well. Because when you look at the points in the paints difference, it was 56 to 32. So Boston completely owned the paint. And going forward in this series, because granted, this is just game one. And I think this is going to be a very compelling series moving forward. Boston's going to have to be able to maintain a couple things. They have to keep owning the paint because, let's face it, Brooklyn is not a very good defensive team in the paint. Pretty much their rim protector is going to be either Andre Drummond or Nicholas Claxton. So Boston could definitely exploit that to their advantage throughout the rest of the series. Not only that, if they're able to maintain their rebounding capabilities like they were in Game 1, that bodes for them very well throughout the rest of this series. And I imagine... Going into game two, they're going to make it a point of emphasis to try to improve their shooting percentages a little bit more because, let's face it, Brooklyn shot better than Boston did despite the fact that Boston got this win. So I think Boston's going to look look at the tape and they're going to see we missed some shots that we should have knocked down or try to avoid some, um, some, some, some contested shots that just weren't necessary. And I think as long as they're able to keep the defensive pressure on Brooklyn moving forward, because Brooklyn is going to score unless Katie's having an off night, Kyrie's having an off night. But by and large, those two are going to score despite what Boston can throw at them defensively. If they can hold Brooklyn to under 110 points and maybe even 100 points, that's going to really bode well for them throughout the rest of this series. But overall, a fantastic game one. This is going to be a great series from beginning to end, despite the fact that this is a two seed going up against a seven seed. When we look at it from Brooklyn's perspective, Brooklyn is a really strong seven seed. So they're going to give Boston a lot of work. And I imagine that Brooklyn's going to be chomping at the bit uh, to get back uh, to Boston for game two, because there was just really just one play that was a difference maker in this game. But that's all it takes. You know, one missed defensive assignment and KD blew that defensive assignment on Jason at the end of the game. Now, Brooklyn could be sitting here at 1-0 at this current uh, point in time, but they're looking at it from an 0-1 perspective. So that's definitely something that Brooklyn's going to have to get back going into game two. But all in all, a great performance from Boston, and it really showed their ability to handle adversity and just remain tough throughout the entire course of the game. So kudos to Boston. I got to give it up to them. So I know what you guys are thinking. I know that I said that it was mainly on Boston's defense, and then Kyle went out and gave the percentages as to why that kind of counters what I'm saying. Here's why I say that Boston had a good defensive game. KD was 9-24. to 
Kyrie had one of the better games of his career, making a lot of contested jump shots. If you take away Kyrie's contested shots or he misses just a bit of those, that percentage dwindles well under 50% from the field. That three-point percentage dwindles well under 40%. Kyrie was 6 of 10 by himself from the three-point line. Kyrie was 12 of 20 overall from the field. Again, like I said, KD is 1 of 5 from 3, 9 of 24. Steph had an off night. Andre Drummond is not an offensive player. Neither is Bruce Brown. So you're really looking at the, you know, the second coming or the second star player. And he was pretty much under wraps. Um, obviously, the two of those people take the majority of the volume shots for the Brooklyn Nets. But when one of them has a very, very bad night like that, you have to pat yourself in the back, especially because KD had a negative 13 and the plus minus. He ended with 23 points, but that was a tough fought 23 points with Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown guarding him for the majority of the game. And like I said, Kyrie was on one, but Kyrie was hitting some really, really, really tough shots. And I mean, a one jab fading in the corner with Jalen Brown right in his grill, uh, a pull up three in transition with, with a man literally coming down off of a screen to contest. It, these are all really tough basketball shots. And this is a perfect segue into what we're going to talk about. Kyrie Irving single-handedly kept the Nets alive because KD was just not able to get into a consistent rhythm. And Kyrie was feeding off of the fans' animosity. Kyrie was loving and just enjoying all the negativity and the trash talk that was emanating from TD Garden. And I think that that kicked it into another gear. The man was also 9 of 9 from the free throw line. Ice cold. He's one of the better free throw shooters in basketball, so it's not really saying much. But when you have a, a, hostile, and hostile, a hostile environment like it was in Boston for him, I thought that he stepped up and he saw that his running mate in Kevin Durant was unable to knock down shots or really find the bottom of the net. And I thought that that was his way of saying, I'm right here. I, I, I'm ready for you to talk your shit. I'm, I'm ready for you guys to, 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 to heckle me the entire day. I'm, I'm, it's not going to bother me. He's a point away from 40. I mean, he had 18 in the fourth alone, Kyle. The man was a, a, a player on a mission, a guy looking to shut up a crowd away, and I thought that he was the player of the game despite the loss. Yeah, and I mean that's that's our next segment that we're gonna hit. So let's like let's just transition straight into it. I mean, you know, Kyrie was only one point away from forty points, like Kevin mentioned, and I mean, despite you know it coming in a losing effort, I mean, nobody can ever really look at Kyrie and say like he didn't do his part. He was ready to go. And he showed up um, in the biggest moments for Brooklyn when they needed it. But just overall, the team just fell a little bit short just by one point. Kevin, to kick this one to you, but despite the Nets losing to the Celtics in game one, just how impressive was Kyrie in game one? We all know that Kyrie Irving is one of the most electrifying players in basketball when he's on the court. When he's healthy, top 10 player, in my opinion. He's one of the most entertaining players to watch. The man can shoot, finish at the rim, left hand, right hand. Um, truthfully is probably one of the players in NBA history that cannot be guarded by anybody. I would love to see Kyrie Irving go up against uh, prime Michael Jordan, prime Scottie Pippen, um, you know, prime Ron Artest. Like if it was possible to put some of the best players in, I I would love to see him in that position. I mean, we saw him at USA basketball camp a couple of years ago, or should I say a while back now when he was just 19, 20 years old going up against some of the better defenders in the NBA Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, and just a litany of players that he just ran through and just basically made look silly. The man walks into this court or walks into this arena and says, I got it. He's got no fear. 
He doesn't let anything bother him. The fans heckling him. Yeah, maybe he flipped him off. Yeah, maybe he gave him a derogatory comment at the end of the game out of frustration of a loss. But when he is on the court, ain't nothing, ain't nothing bother him. Bro, smooth. What, what is it Stuart Scott used to say? Cool as the other side of the pillow. Rest in peace, Stuart Scott. But, dude, Kyrie Irving single-handedly, like I said before, carried this team to stay relevant and stay in this game. 18 points in the fourth quarter, and he was guarded by everybody. You switch Tatum on him, it didn't matter. You put Marcus Smart on him to, 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 to harass him and get physical with him, it didn't matter. You, you put Jalen Brown on him, it didn't matter. It, like, truthfully and honestly, he is a walking mismatch, and he is going to find a way to score no matter who's on him. Now, granted, it's game one. They got six more games to go if this game were to go to seven. I'm not going to sit here and say Kyrie has unlocked Pandora's box and he's going to score at will no matter what happens. We all know he's got the potential to do that. But when you start off a series – and you make a statement like that and damn near drop 40 and still kick out six assists and he had four steals, like I said, man, Kyrie a man on a mission, and he's not one to shy away from a double team either. We all know that he can split a double, and if he doesn't, he's going to find somebody open. And nine times out of ten, that's KD or Seth Curry in a corner. So Seth Curry's going to get it going. He's going to get his players involved. KD obviously had an off night. The Nets are going to be fine, but from a standpoint of – Kyrie Irving, how impactful this was, that was huge. And if it wasn't for him, this game could have gotten away from Brooklyn pretty quickly. And I think Boston definitely could have won this by double digits if it wasn't for Kyrie. So shout out to Ree, man. That 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 was you know, Kai was going off. Kevin, I'm gonna be a little bit more petty than I typically am when it comes to these segments because I mean look, you know, there's no doubt in my mind, you know, Kyrie was sensational in game one, 39 points really kept Brooklyn in it in the fourth quarter. That goes without saying. The problem that I have with Kyrie from this game is not what he did on the court, but really kind of like how he responds to all the heckling from the fans. And look, let's face it. Kyrie Irving and and Boston, they just don't mix well. He had a pretty uh, tenuous relationship with the Celtics while he was there. And I imagine the fans still harbor some pretty resentful feelings towards him. Uh, based on how he left in the manner that he did. Because that's really the point of emphasis that I'm going to make with this point. Kyrie is a little bit too sensitive when it comes to Boston and their fans. Now, I understand Boston has some really tough and gritty fans. And mind you, Boston fans can be tricky just based on how they like you. If they like a player, they love them. Because there's no way that you can tell me different. Like, all of these Boston Celtics fans, they love Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart. I mean, you know, they will ride or die for these guys no matter what. Unless, you know, they do them dirty in any sort of way. Kyrie Irving? Well, let's just say that, you know, it didn't end well when Kyrie was there. And then when he went to Brooklyn right after. And trust me, those Boston fans know. And when they see him on the court in Boston, they're going to let him know in every way, shape, or form. Granted, Kyrie may not like it because he finds it disrespectful. He finds it out of pocket. But that's what they're there. That's what they're there to do. They're there to get under your skin. They're there to let you know about it, and they're not going to back off. Now, what Kyrie does pretty well is that he uses that as fuel, and he's able to propel himself and his team to not only a chance to win the game, but just an overall better performance. The part that I have a problem with Kyrie is that 
I think he's a little too soft when it comes to how he receives uh, criticism or insults from Boston's fans. You got to know that coming into the arena based on what you did when you left Boston in the manner that you did it. And trust me, they're not going to stop because guess what? More than likely, the series is going past five games to begin with. So you're going to see them again and they are going to be in your grill every time they see you. So guess what? If you're Kyrie, just use the hate as fuel. Just keep going and doing what you do on a consistent basis. Because more than likely, if Kyrie keeps playing at the clip that he's playing at, it wouldn't surprise me if he drops 40 in the garden in game two or possibly game five or game seven if it gets to that point. So Kyrie's going to have ample opportunities to get really good performances in the garden. And trust me, he's going to get the opportunity to let those fans know that he's for real. He's not to be played with. And that's despite whatever sort of insults are thrown his way. That's really the only takeaway that I that I have as far as criticism for Kyrie. I can't criticize the, the man's game. I mean, Kyrie is just an amazing basketball player. I mean, he's one of the most electrifying basketball players of this generation's. I mean, his handle is probably the greatest handle of all time in NBA history. And the only part that I could really kind of criticize in regards to Kyrie Irving is just his ability just to handle criticism from the fans. From the fans, he has to do it better. Can't come off soft, and in some of these instances, he has looked soft in how he receives the criticisms from fans or just insults in general. And really, my only advice to him in that regard is just keep using it as fuel to just go out and give it to him. Now, if he drops forty-five points in a dub for Brooklyn in Game Two, then it's all worth it because then that just pisses off Boston fans. Like they may hate it all they want, but drop forty-five points on them, they just have to accept that it is what it is. But overall, I mean, you know, Kyrie's a great player. That there's nothing new with that. The only thing I would tell him is just don't let that don't let the insults get to you. There's nothing by it. it there really isn't. Bro, it's like I watched that game and it's 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 like as a fan of just basketball, you look at some of the shots he takes and you're sitting there like, What are you doing? Or like we talked about uh on the phone. Like, oh, my God, like, heat check, and when what happened is a splash. Kyrie doesn't have bad shots. Kyrie is confident that he can make it anywhere that he pulls. And the fact that he was on one today and that the, that the crowd fueled him, it was one of those games where you saw him, like, when, when, when they went to commercial break and they zoomed in on his face, and he was just, like, stone cold, like, very Kobe-esque, maybe not the underbite, maybe not the jersey bite or anything like that, but it was just – Bro, not a cheer, not a scream, not an X, nothing. He was just, Even he's won him. a chip before. He's, he's, he's won a chip before. He's been to multiple finals. He knows what it takes to get it done. KD does too. But, man, everybody giving Kyrie so much shit for his antics off the court, the vaccine, the, the, uh, you know, the comments about James, whatever it is. But when he is in between those lines, bro, there's very few in between like Kyrie Irving. I'll say this though, bro. Those Boston fans, they get in his head. They do. He can't even deny it at this point. Granted, you know he he's still gonna go out there and ball out. That's one thing. But bro, I don't know if you saw. I'm pretty sure you saw it on Twitter earlier, where he was doing. I think he was doing a uh, a side out pass from out of bounds. And he did the. It wasn't that he did two. Oh, the he, double he middle did, finger. He did the double middle finger. 
and that you know yeah, he did it behind, he, he did it behind his head just to kind of let the fans know how he really feels. Oh, trust me, there's animosity there. There's no doubt about that. And he it, brought that upon himself. We talked about that though. I, That's I, he told the t- the organization and, and the fans, "I'm coming back," I, and, and then, he didn't. And, and then you know what? I'm like, I don't know why he gets all soft and gets all sensitive when it comes to this topic. Because every time we go back to Boston with Kyrie, it's always the same topic. And it's, it's, he's the one that's bringing it up every single time. I'm like, Boston fans don't forget. They do not forget, especially when they feel like they've been slighted. We don't have, like, I'll give you an example. Like the way that, that, that Boston fans feel about uh, Tom Brady is entirely different. Brady brought them six championships. I mean, no, I, I'm speaking as one from a Patriot fan perspective. So, you know, really as a Boston sports fan, like or like when it comes to Tom Brady, like Tom Brady did not, not only fulfilled his duty as a Patriot fan. He, I mean, he went as a Patriot player. He went above and beyond. We can't say that with Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving, I, I mean, they never even made it to the, to the finals with Kyrie on the roster. No, they made it to the Eastern Conference Finals without Kyrie because he was hurt. That was Jason Tatum's rookie year. I know that was the that was the year that he dunked on LeBron James, LeBron, and and like stared him down after. But you know that's the thing is like you know they're not gonna forget. And trust me, when they've been slighted, when they feel like they've been done over, they're gonna let you know. I mean, but let's be fair; it could be a lot worse. I mean, for God's sakes, I remember when LeBron James went to Cleveland. His first time after going to the Heat, bro, they were throwing batteries at him. Like That's saying, brutal. You, you're you're dead to me. That's insane. Like the animosity that LeBron felt from Cleveland the first time that he went back to Miami is in no way, shape, or form similar to what Kyrie is experiencing now. Because what Kyrie is experiencing is levels of magnitude beneath what LeBron experienced back in Cleveland. This is not even comparable. And if Kyrie's getting soft or sensitive about this, just because things are being said to him in a mean manner, Kyrie got to be a little bit better than that. Kyrie can't take that too too personal. And I think to a certain extent, he is. I don't mind him using it as fuel to generate a better performance for himself and for the team as a whole. But when it comes to these post-game press conferences that he has, he's coming off sensitive. And that, to me, is a problem. Because it gets to him. It does. And there's no other way that you could tell it to me. Hey, I, it is what it is. We, we, we're we only going to have to wait until game two, which unfortunately we have to wait until Tuesday. That's um, going to be fun, but, bro. That's going to be fun. Dude, that game two is going to be, yo, you thought I came at you guys cross-sided before. <laughs> wait, watch KD say, bro, y'all got lucky. K- KD's got to play better. He only dropped 23 points in that game. In, in game and, one. A, and an awful percentage too at that. Yeah, he's got to play better. I mean, Kyrie was clean, yeah. don't get me wrong, but Katie's got to step up. So it'll be interesting to see how they adjust. They'll be, I mean, they only lost the game by one point. I mean, exactly, but they have to, still, they have you got to make adjustments. They have to make adjustments just a little bit better. To, uh, better, um, honestly, they have to make better. Um, yeah, rebounds. I was just I'd say, like, overall, they've just had to rebound the ball better because they got yeah. smoked by Boston. But, you know, we'll see what happens in game two. But with that said, we're going to transition over to the Western Conference for a little bit. We're going to talk about the Minnesota Timberwolves. Kevin, would you say it was surprising that they won game one against the Memphis Grizzlies? Were you surprised? Big time. 
because honestly that was probably the most surprising result of the weekend to me because i did not expect that um so that's gonna be the focus of our next topic the timberwolves getting a huge win on the road in game one uh they're the seventh seed going up against the two-seeded grizzlies and put 130 points on the grizzlies on the road which is quite impressive i say that subjectively but you got it from an objective perspective that's pretty impressive and overall you know you look at guys like Anthony Edwards, Carl Anthony Towns, even Malik Beasley, all stepped up in a major role to get Minnesota a huge game one win that's going to possibly propel them throughout the rest of the series. Now, Kevin, to kick this one to you, just how impressive was the T-Wolves win in game one? And what does it mean for the uh, T-Wolves moving forward going into game two against the Grizzlies? Everything. Um it's hard to put into words because I, I was out last night hanging out with the missus, just chilling. Uh, I checked my phone to check the score as the Golden State game is on, and I'm like, oh, let's see how much the Grizzlies won by. I swear to God, that's exactly what I said because I, I genuinely thought Timberwolves had no shot, and I see that they won by 13. And I'm sitting here like, wait a second, what? The fact that people were mocking the Timberwolves, myself included, um, a lot of my friends, for them celebrating like they had won the NBA Finals. J.J. Redick had gone on TV or on his podcast and said, the city cared, the coaches cared, the players cared. That emotion that comes from a team that wins and finally does something that felt meaningful, um, it's validated. And all that, all that those players needed was that moment to spark a run. All they needed was that moment to feel like they can do it, that confidence that builds within an organization or a group of men to make a push in the postseason. Now, I'm pretty sure J.J. didn't mean that they're going to take this and run all the way to the NBA Finals. But, of course, J.J. said himself he has been on a team, a.k.a. I think the 2015 Clippers, where they beat the Spurs in round one. And he said that he had cried. He had tears after the game because they finally were able to beat a team that had gone to -to back-to-back finals. They were finally able to beat a team that nine times out of ten had beat them in the postseason. And he said that that's normal. So that electrifying win the other night when Minnesota won to lock up the seventh seed, I think is the main reason why they were able to propel and do what they did behind the leadership of Anthony Edwards. Dude, I I, I told Kyle just a few moments before we started recording, I don't know what it is with these first round picks from the last couple of years. Like I know I'm combining sports and they're two different things, but dude, Joe Burrow and and this man Anthony Edwards, they're they're no joke, man. They have a a confidence, a swagger, a no fear type of mentality. You know, AE been like that since his rookie year last year. I mean, post game conference, uh, post game interviews, man, hysterical. Pre game interviews, hilarious. And and now you go into a postseason setting, and he says he likes the fans talking shit. He enjoys the rile up of it. He he just he, basketball is fun. First postseason game ever, 36 points. I didn't expect that whatsoever. The man just came out pulling, and he was 8 of 8 from the three-point line. Only two turnovers? Bro, for, for, for a first-year or a second-year player, that's absolutely insane. It, the Carl Anthony Towns, 29 points, and he caught a body? Bro, this team caught that spark. They're riding that wave, and it's behind the leader that is Anthony Edwards, who's emerging to be... One of those people that you look at like, all right, he's already a talented player. All right, he's already a star in his own right. 
can he elevate that game to become a superstar? Can he become that that all caliber player that the Timberwolves need that they haven't had since Kevin Garnett? Dude, th- this kid's no joke. The tandem between him and Edwards, excuse me, between him and Towns is absolutely insane. And let's not forget a player that's consistently forgotten because he has been forgetful the last year or so. D'Angelo Russell only had 10 points. He was 2 of 11. Yeah, heaven forbid he starts to get a little bit of rhythm. It's, it's a wrap. Like, Ja had to go drop 32 to make this game close. Desmond Bain had a pretty minuscule night. I mean, he had it was 6 of 15. Uh, Steven Adams, again, not an offensive player. He didn't even score. Dylan Brooks was the second leading scorer on the Grizzlies with 24. Uh, Jaron Jackson Jr., 12. Um, I just, I really can't sit here and say anything aside from they had a pretty bad night from the three-point line. They were only shooting 25.9%, and they just could not get it going overall as a team. 11 turnovers, they just really, they, they took care of the basketball. But you're just looking at it, and you're saying, oh, my God, how were they not able to stop Anthony Edwards? So this game was a massive shock to me. Um, this is a really, really young team that has come out here and, and, and said, hey, we're not scared. And by young, I mean young and experienced in the postseason because we all know Pat Bev a little bit on the older side. Um, obviously, we know Carl Anthony Towns isn't a young buck in terms of, like, he's not like a first- or second-year player. Uh, D'Angelo Russell's been to the postseason a couple times. So these players are just, I don't know, man. It, it, it's crazy to think that Minnesota went out here and beat Memphis on the road. It's insane to think that John ja Morant, his 32 wasn't even close to enough. And a, and a second-year player's out here damn near dropping 40 in his first postseason game and laughing about it in the postgame conference. I, dude, Minnesota might be one of those teams to watch because – that was that that performance itself was it could be that spark or that plug that they need to, to, to kind of go on a little bit of a run and maybe shock us. I mean, to me, it was probably the most shocking result of the entire week because the, you know the way that I looked at it was you know Minnesota has always kind of been a team like on the outside looking in the last couple of years. Yeah, they've had a couple of flash moments here and there, maybe it's like some big time dunks that that really get highlighted on social media, Twitter or Facebook, for example. But they just, they weren't really a team that I thought it's like, yeah, like this team is like a difference maker. Like this team could actually make noise going into the playoffs. Well, I have to kind of, I guess, amend that statement because I can't really see that at this current point in time just because Minnesota did it. I I really can't believe it. And it's like you said, Kev, I think, I think it's safe to say at this point that Anthony Edwards is probably a star at this point in time, but I mean, this is a superstar in the making and there's really no other way to say it because, you know, when you're going into your first uh, playoff game as an NBA basketball player, I would imagine like for Anthony Edwards, like there would be a little bit of pressure associated with that just because it's a much more high pressurized moment compared to just playing regular season games. Usually the pace of playoff games is usually slower and I thought that that might be a couple factors that would go against him in his first playoff game. I guess the part that I missed was when you look at Memphis and Minnesota, as far as both teams are constructed, Kevin, I think it's fair to say these teams are relatively young as far as like their average age is concerned with this roster or with both rosters. And I think Anthony Edwards said, you know what? No matter what, 
if this is my first playoff game or if this is my 100th playoff game. I'm going to go out here and ball out for my team. 40 minutes, 36 points, and was really the guy that led the way for Minnesota from beginning to end in this game against the Grizzlies. And to me, like when it comes to like the best players on the court in this series featuring the Timberwolves and the Grizzlies, you know, my first player that I would pick as like the really like the game shifting player that could really make a difference in the game. That'd be Ja Morant. Granted, Ja's missed some time the last couple of weeks with a lingering injury issue, but I would still kind of side with him because Ja Morant was a pretty solid MVP candidate throughout most of the year before he got hurt at the end of the year, just because of his amazing athletic ability. And whenever he drives into the lane, he's looking to decapitate people by just jamming it at the rim. But Anthony Edwards, I can no longer sleep on this guy. This guy has shown flash moments here and there throughout the the first two years in his NBA career. But this is by far his biggest one to me. To put 36 points on the road in a Game 1 playoff series against the two-seeded Grizzlies, who were one of the best teams in the NBA to a larger extent as well, that's insane to me. And then to go along with that, if you're getting contributions from Carl Anthony Towns and Malik Beasley the way that they did, this is going to be a much more compelling series than I originally gave it credit because I honestly thought that Memphis would relatively go throughout the series pretty quickly, probably maybe five games. If they pushed it, maybe six as far as Minnesota pushing the, the length of the series to me. But I, I kind of disrespected Minnesota to a certain extent because I just didn't think that they were ready for the moment. That game one performance definitely proved it to me. And as far as going into game two is concerned, I think Minnesota has a very good chance to possibly replicate a very similar performance. Granted, I don't know if they're going to win game two because I would imagine Memphis is going to make some pretty significant adjustments uh, going into game two, specifically behind the three-point line. Like Kevin mentioned, they only shot 25% from the field. Um, in that game, as far as the Grizzlies are concerned. But if Minnesota could put up a very similar type of offensive production uh, style, like they did in game one going into game two, that is going to serve them extremely well. And it's going to put a lot of pressure on Memphis to get it back because I don't think Memphis was originally expecting that they would be down 0-1 after game one. So Memphis is going to have a lot to play for in game two. Minnesota's got to be ready for Memphis to punch him in the mouth because Memphis is going to go balls to the wall to try to even this series before it goes back to Minnesota for game three. But that dude, Anthony Edwards, is a problem. He's gotten my attention, and I think he's gotten a lot of other people's attention just because I think that this guy is on the cusp of becoming a superstar. And that's just how I see it. Bro, kid's got no fear. None. And I love it. I love it, dude. We saw glimpses of it last year in his rookie season. Uh, We saw the confidence in his shot selection. He's developed his jump shot a lot more since he's come out of Georgia. Um, His ball handling skills is probably one of the biggest things that jumps out at me just because, again, he wasn't, to me, known for that. He was known for his athleticism, his ability to finish at the rim, um, his ability to finish with both hands. And now you actually develop a little bit of handle. Some... a jump shot, it's like kids these days are growing and adapting so much faster in their development in the league, and you're just looking at Anthony Edwards like, bro, what can't you do? 
Now he just kind of needs to step up in that aspect of becoming a little bit of a better defender on a consistent night in and night out basis. But efficient scorer, better shooter, better at ball handling. I mean, he is a great leader already at that young age and paired with a good big like Carl Anthony Towns and a great point guard with an ability to also finish at the rim and D'Angelo Russell when he's on and healthy. But that's a nice one, two, three little combo, a nice little big trio of their own out there in Minnesota. And um, I think that they're going to be dangerous, you know, in the years to come in the near future. And I know that, you know, we're we're still in the playoffs right now this year, so I should be living in the moment. I'm not trying to be a prisoner of the moment. But AE's been doing this all year. We just haven't been getting a lot of recognition for it because – or he hasn't been getting a lot of recognition for it because he plays in Minnesota. It's not a big market. Nobody pays attention there. The only people that pay attention to Minnesota are people that pay attention to Patrick Beverly because he's always getting ejected or getting attacked for something stupid. Or and crying, uh, or I think whenever that whenever they went up playing tournament game. Hey, and, and listen, as much as we give Pat Bev shit, that veteran presence could have been the reason why that, that, that mentality changed because we all know that he brings that grit and physicality to whatever team he's on. And I respect him for that because he is undersized. He's not a threat to score. He is a, a, a person that speaks with a lot of animosity and confidence because he feels like he can guard anybody in the league, whether it's one through five, whether it's LeBron James or Michael Jordan, whether it's talking to Steph Curry. You, you got to respect the guy that, that comes into the locker room and says, I'm that guy. Don't worry about it. I, I, I fuck with him for that. I do. It's, I'll tell you this. You know, going into game two, what are you thinking about it from the Memphis perspective? Because like, I... Uh, dude, I'm a full, like, you can't convince me differently. Memphis, I think, was thinking that they were just going to roll in the game one and just win. I don't think they were ready easily. for it. Because they looked a little, they just looked off. They just, like, they couldn't get into a rhythm, especially by the three-point line. That was probably the most uh, concerning aspect of, of that game one for me, as far as the Grizzlies' perspective is concerned. But really, like, if you're looking at this from the Grizzlies' perspective, like, what has to change going in the game? You you got to put the clamps on AE. And I know that's, that's, that's being a very basic person and just saying one thing, but you saw his ability to shoot the basketball. You have got to be able to pick him up at half or you've got to trap him at the top of the key to make him make somebody else make those shots. I know Malik Beasley made a lot of shots. I know that Carl Anthony Towns was able to bully them in the post. To be honest, we all know that the, the body he caught was – RIP Steven Adams. Adams has got to play better. Zero points. I'm not asking you to give me 15. I'm not asking you to give me 20. I'm not asking you to go freaking 7 of 10 from the three-point line. It's unacceptable. You're a starting center in the NBA. You have to give me some form of offensive production. I know he's not known for it. you got to do something for me. Role players. I need other people to step up on this team. I need Bain to go and shoot the lights out like he has been all year. I really do. To I, I need to see Dylan Brooks shoot a little bit more efficiently from the field and not take the volume of shots that he's taking. I need Jaron Jackson Jr. to go out there and do better like he's been doing all season. 12 points isn't going to cut it. You know, realistically, they need to adjust behind the three-point line. Like we've discussed, 25% from the three is not going to do it. So adjustments have got to be make yourself known on the defensive end of the basketball, force some turnovers, get the ball out of Anthony Edwards' hands, and then when you capitalize, create those turnovers, you got to score whether that's behind the arc, whether that's a half-court set, or whether that's just finding the open man to make the, the you know, to get that next man open, you, you have to, have to, have to do better. And 
dude, you're on your home court. You lose game two to a seven seed. You go back to Minnesota. If I'm if I'm Memphis, and we lose both games, at home, I'm shitting my pants, and I'm in I'm I'm in pure fear of this ending. Not in a sweep because I gotta go. I, I think I think Memphis will get one in in Minnesota, dude. You're you're in jeopardy to lose this game at five or six. Seriously, Seriously. because a team like a a, te- a team like this, you do not give them momentum. You have to break it right now. Game two goes to the Minnesota. Memphis is in trouble. I think this is because, well, relatively speaking, like these teams are young across the board, not just one team. Like both teams are relatively young, and I think when it comes to like Minnesota's um, look at things. I think there's just like, you know what? It's like, we're just going to play for the moment and we're going to see what happens. And I think for the Grizzlies, the Grizzlies are going to be feeling the heat for this game too. They're going to be feeling the pressure in, in a big way. And these guys are going to have to step up and, and face adversity a little bit because I don't think that they were expecting the type of performance that they were going to get from Minnesota. I mean, they put up 130 points, Minnesota did. I don't think anybody was really. And that's a tough defense. In, in Memphis. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe it's just maybe it's just a little bit youth and inexperience uh, when it comes to Memphis. I mean, it's tough for me to say that, though, because Memphis is a two seed. If Memphis is like a four or five seed or like a six seed, that'd be one thing because they were kind of like they'd be a little bit up and down throughout the season. They weren't. Yeah, but they made year. the playoffs last year. But this year's different. I mean, for God's sakes, they had one of the best records in the NBA when John ja Morant wasn't in the lineup. I mean, they That's went true. like they only lost like two or three games the entire year when Ja was out of the lineup. Granted, oh, ja, ja was an MVP candidate throughout most of the season until the end of the year when he got hurt. But I thought that like you know once Ja was back into the fold and they would just lock up the chemistry like they did earlier in the season that it would just be like clockwork. In game one, that did not happen. So you got to give Minnesota a lot of credit because they proved a lot of people uh, wrong in that game one performance that they had. But if you're looking at this from Memphis's perspective, they need to be on for game two because, like you said, if they lose game two at home, dude, it's going to be scary for them going into a hostile environment for game three back in Minneapolis. That's going to be scary. So they got to they got to play their cards right. I do have to mention one thing, though, before we transition into uh, the Warriors aspect or the Warriors game. When I sent you that picture on Twitter of uh, John Moran's dad, did you honestly think it was Usher at first? No, because I've seen pictures of John's dad before, and it, it, it's, it's a very close, very, very close comparison. It, it, it's a striking resemblance. It was striking, Kev. Because, yeah. I, you know... I don't know if it was the haircut. I don't know if it was the beard or just like what, what is uh, what Jaws' dad was wearing. But honestly, if you put a side by side picture of both of them next to each other, there's a striking resemblance. It's not, oh, yeah, for sure. It, it, it caught me off guard. Like when I saw that picture of Jaws' dad just on the sideline, I think he was dabbing up uh, Carl Anthony Carl Towns', Anthony Towns dad. dad. That 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 was cool. But I was like. That might be Usher, bro. It <laughs> kind of looks like Usher. He, he, bro, he could have totally pulled it off and be like, yeah, I wouldn't think differently. Yeah, true. So a little fun, a little fun from that game. So, But uh, 
what, what was it? Um, what happened in, um, oh, what was it? Um, the, the audio in that, um, in that game for ESPN, the audio went out. Did and, it? Uh, oh yeah. Cause trust me, Twitter was giving ESPN hell for what happened, uh, with the audio just because they had a really bad technical, uh, di- difficulty where there was just a lot of, uh, there was just a lot of uh, backfeed on the audio aspect, and it literally sounded like something was screeching um, throughout the entire course of the game. Not the entire course of the game, but like a, an aspect of the game. It, w- it was a while, though, before ESPN got that resolved. And trust me, Twitter was kind of giving them the business about that. But um, yeah, so some things went down in that game. It was a little weird, but thankfully for uh, ESPN's sake, they were able to resolve those issues. But with that said, we're going to transition into our next game, which is going to be uh, the Warriors simply dominating the Nuggets in game one of their series. It was a beatdown, and there's really no other way to say it. But the Warriors beat the Nuggets by the score of 123 to 107. I mean, really some standout players from Golden State um, in this regard were Jordan Poole. Jordan Poole had 30 points. Uh, Steph Curry, this was. Uh, his first game back from his foot injury that he sustained a couple of weeks back. Uh, he was a little rusty, uh, but was still able to put up a, a decent performance. Uh, Clay Thompson and Draymond Green had respective uh, performances in their game one win over Denver, but it was a pretty, uh, a pretty big win overall for Golden State in that regard. Now, Kevin, to kick this one to you, when you look back at this game one performance from the Warriors, who stood out the most? from them just absolutely dominating. It's got to be Jordan Poole. Clear-cut favorite right there. No hesitation. The man was 6 of 6 or 7 of 7 at halftime. Just absolutely unguardable, it seemed like. You would never know this kid's maybe in his third year. You would never know that he wasn't doing very well in his rookie season. You would never know that he's fresh out of college as of a couple seasons ago. Um, Playing like a, a veteran uh, very much so. His first playoff series, for God's sakes. I mean, he just, he was able to just control the tempo of the game and he let it come to him. 9 of 13 from the field. He had a couple of assists. Uh, I mean, 30 points, plus 7 in the plus minus. He was just unguardable from all aspects of the court. 5 of 7 from the three-point line. 7 of 8 from the free throw line. You name it, Jordan Poole was able to do it. Finishing at the rim, getting teammates involved. And, dude, it was, it was really, really, really fun to watch. I saw a, uh, a tweet on Twitter where it was like, the NBA is in really good hands. And it was a picture of, like, Jordan Poole and Anthony Edwards. And it's like, wow. Like, dude, he's learning from Steph Curry and Clay Thompson. You know, obviously, Anthony Edwards is, you know, growing with Cat, growing with D'Angelo Russell. That's like a young trio, like I said in the last segment. Um, and... It's actually incredible that he has become his own star. He's really um, kind of in that conversation for most improved player of the year. And he's just able to carry the Warriors despite Steph's slow start, uh, despite Clay not necessarily getting into a a full rhythm, at least on a consistent basis, uh, despite the fact that Andrew Wiggins was only able to give 16. Granted, those are an efficient 16 points as he was 6 of 11, but he gives them that person that can score by himself he gives them that second option when Steph is off the court um, he gives them that option 
if Steph and Clay are having off nights or if Steph or Clay is getting doubled, you leave Jordan open, that's a knockdown shooter right there. Jordan pulls the X factor in this series without a doubt. Trust me, we all understand the impact that Clay and Steph are going to have. And when Steph gets his legs back under him and Clay gets back, uh, you know, to 100%, we all know he's still not necessarily recovering because he's been cleared from the doctors. But, you know, when you have almost two full years, if not two full years away from meaningful basketball in terms of postseason basketball, it's going to take a while for you to have confidence in your shot. So we'll see what happens in that regard. But I mean, still, I mean, as per usual, I'm talking like Clay was like two of 12 from the three point line. He was still five of 10, which is 50%, which is just insane. But Jordan Poole, man, that's the guy people need to pay attention to. That's the guy that has earned the respect of everybody in that locker room and is earning everybody's respect in the NBA community. Um, kudos to Poole dropping 30. Man was an absolute bucket, but man, Overall, Golden State just, they were able to get it done, bro. Straight up, straightforward. They are looking like a team that can make a run just because they are the Golden State Warriors. They're used to this particular area. Um, they've been here before, obviously, and they have the coaching staff and they have the personnel. But when you have somebody like Jordan Poole that can go and step up when others are having off nights, it's pivotal, bro. You know, it's kind of interesting because – you know, when it comes like the most impactful player for, for Golden State as a whole, to me, it, it's Steph Curry. But when you look at this game specifically in the game one uh, against Denver, I mean, Kevin, I, I'm with you 100% on this one. It, it's Jordan. But, you know, I, I think a part of it is that, you know, Steph is always somebody that you have to respect at all times just because you know what he's capable of. But Jordan Poole, it's a little bit different just because he's still ascending as far as his talent as an NBA player. But this is kind of one of those moments where he's taking his talents and taking it to the next level because 30 points in a playoff debut, that's extremely impressive. And I think moving forward in this series, I, I don't know if Jordan Poole is going to necessarily have this same type of performance like he did in game one. I think this is a situation where clearly Steph was a little bit rusty coming off of his foot injury. This is, that was his first game back in, I believe, it, at least a month. And granted, Andrew Wiggins and Klay Thompson, you know, they had respective performances in this game one against Denver. But I think Jordan Poole really kind of looked at the situation and, and took full advantage of it because, I mean, Kevin, if I remember this correctly, Jordan Poole only played 30 minutes in that game against Golden State, and he was able to do it in an efficient manner by dropping 30 points, which is essentially a point per minute. So if Jordan's just consistent for Golden State throughout this series and probably uh, the next playoff series that they'll get to, because I think more than likely uh, Golden State's going to win this series. That's just kind of how I see it playing out. That's a great scenario for for Golden State because more than likely Steph's going to get into a rhythm Clay Thompson's going to have a game or two where he really pops off. Wouldn't be surprised if Andrew Wiggins has a good game here and there. Jordan Poole is kind of that one guy that if people are slacking off as far as just knocking down shots, Jordan Poole could be the guy to bail them out and really kind of take Golden State on his back and carry them to the promised land. It's just dependent on what type of game you're getting from the superstars in regards to Steph and Clay and even Draymond to a certain extent. Jordan Poole is still relatively young. He's kind of this base of a new wave that's coming into Golden State because, you know, let's face it, you know, Steph, Clay, Draymond, like this has been the mainstay core 
that Golden State's had on their roster for pretty much the last decade plus. But really, when you look at Jordan Poole, guys like Gary Payton II, um, you can look at Jonathan Kaminga, James Wiseman. This is the new fold of Golden State talent coming into the fold. But really, Jordan Poole is that standout key guy that I think Golden State's going to rely on, not just throughout this playoff series, but for years to come. Because you know it's going to get to a point in time where Steph um, is, is going to either retire or move on from Golden State before he hangs it up at the end of his career. And I look at Jordan Poole as a guy that, you know, he's taking these moments when he gets them and he's taking full advantage of them. And when you could drop 30 points in your playoff debut, uh, that's a sign of things to come as far as I'm concerned. So as far as I'm concerned, the most impactful player from game one for Golden State, it, it was Jordan Poole. And I wouldn't be surprised if he does this in the future, in uh, in the near future. That's just how I see it. And, and the wild part about it to me, Kyle, is a lot of their role players have some off nights. Otto Porter only had four points. Kaminga barely played, but he had only one point. Toscano Anderson only had four minutes, but he only had three points. Obviously, Steph was off. Gary Payton the second only had five. Dude, this team catches fire at any point with them having a healthy, deep roster. Dude, I feel bad for a lot of teams in the Western Conference. And it's, again, I, I understand it's game one, and I get it. A lot of players are just kind of getting a feel for it, like you said. But if, if Denver does not wake up, this is going to be a very, very quick series. And we are looking at Nikola Jokic. Kyle and I were talking about this a few hours ago. What more can he do when all he's getting is 24 points from Will Barton, who had probably the game of his life in the postseason. Aaron Gordon with eight abysmal points. You have Jeff Green with seven points. Monte Morris with 10 points. You had one double-digit scorer on the bench. Highland scores 10. What, what more can Nikola do? I mean, for, for goodness sake, he just shot under just under 50% from the field, all four from the three. He was only at the free throw line twice. He had 10 boards. He had six assists. He had three steals and a block. Like, what is he supposed to do when no one's hitting shots? This is why I say, and why Kyle agrees with me, he's the MVP because he's playing with lottery team players that when they're off, what is he supposed to do? He, he, he's probably looking in that locker room like, bro, I need help. Jamal Murray. Do what you got to do and rehab that knee. Michael Porter Jr., bend that $200 million that these idiots gave you and go get a chiropractor or have this damn back surgery. Like, truthfully, he's the guy I feel bad for the most. Nikola Jokic does not deserve this, and this team looked really, really bad. They were really struggling from the field. I mean, they only shot 46% as a team from the field, 31% from the three-point line. Got to do better. I mean, I remember that one sideline shot of Nikola Jokic just like literally just like slouching on the uh, the chair on the bench, and he just looked exhausted. He's just like, he's like, I need help. It's like this is a situation where it's like, you know, injuries are a part of the game, and, and, and to you know not have Michael Porter Jr. and to not have Jamal Murray out there, obviously it hurts the team as a whole. But you know, really for, for Nikola to carry this team to where they are. You know, to carry them all the way to a six seed. 
That's impressive because in the West, I know. I mean, for God's sakes, you know, LeBron James with the Lakers, they couldn't even make the playoffs. And Nikola was able to carry this team to the sixth seed. That's a 48-win team. That's a, that's a four seed in the East, a four or five. And trust me, if Denver was an East, Eastern Conference team right now, there's a good chance that they could compete to go to the second round. Granted, they might have to get better performances from guys like Mark Morris, uh, Jeff Green, and a couple other role players on the roster. But, I mean, to me, I, you know, Nikola didn't have the best game. And honestly, Denver kind of got ran off the court pretty quick in this game because they really kind of lost it in the second quarter and, and in parts of the third quarter as well. Because that second and third quarter, I think Golden State scored 32 in each. Yeah, they scored 64 points in the second and third quarter combined. Ugh. You know, that's tough to that's tough to combat when you're on the road and, and you're down two of some of your best players on the roster. You know, Nikola can only do so much, and I and I imagine that that Jokic is going to have a better game going into game two, but the odds are really stacked against Denver. And, you know, it could look like another early first round exit, very similar to uh, the last year. So, uh, you know, we'll kind of see how, how it plays out, but um, time will tell, bro. Time will tell. But bring in the Dallas. Yeah. With that said, um, we will transition to, Actually, we're going to transition back to the Eastern Conference, and we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, Miami Heat and the Atlanta Hawks game, where the Miami Heat just absolutely dominated Atlanta in that game. It was a runaway game, and the Heat just had full control from beginning to end, and they are currently up 1-0 in that series. We're going to focus on Trey Young specifically because Trey did not have a good game, didn't even score in double digits, had a abysmal shooting performance in game one. Definitely not a uh, performance to remember as far as he's concerned. And um, they're definitely going to need some things to change going into two. Now, Kevin, to kick this one to you, was Trey Young's game one performance a fluke in your mind? Or do you think it's a sign of things to come for him in this series against the Heat? I'm not going to go out and say it was a fluke. I'm going to definitely say that they need to pay attention to this and they need to understand that Miami is a physical and very defensive team. When, you know, in the right mindset and when they're kind of like all locked in. I mean, we all the Jimmy Butler's one of the better on ball defenders. We all know that PJ Tucker is one of the one of the more physical players. We all know that Bam Adebayo on a switch can guard one through five. He's a very versatile defender. So I mean, you name it, they have a list of great on ball defenders that are gonna make life a living hell. And if they double tray it, if they blitz him off the top of the screen, then he is a little bit on the undersized part too, which is another reason why he had six turnovers, all of seven from the three. I mean, one of 12 from the field. They just made his life a living hell, and they got really, really physical with him really quick. And, you know, Jimmy Butler kind of had him on uh, – I don't know if Jimmy had stole it or was a tip, and then they got kind of tangled up, and him and Jimmy kind of got into that physical altercation where they had like that – almost like a headbutt. But when you get into – tray like that you know i know he had like that ice tray against new york but he was hitting shots in new york he was still making shots when those physical moments were happening when those altercations were happening you're not backing up that emotion with performance you're not backing up that confidence with performance and with miami being a team that can be physical throughout an entire playoff series with them being the number one seeded team in the Eastern Conference and having a lot of success early on, 
I would say that this is going to be a continuing thing, or should I say a, a continuing trend, if they don't adjust. And I mean, for goodness sakes, for Danilo Gallinari to lead this team in total points with 17, and he shot horrible. He shot 5 of 12 from the field. Again, actually, now that I do the math, it's not horrible, just under 50%. But if he's your leading scorer, that's not a good look. John Collins, 21 minutes. What are you doing? 10 points? That's it? You got me four boards? What, what's, what? They had 18 total turnovers as a team. They had 19 fouls. They were just unable to get a single thing going. I mean, the biggest thing I'm looking at here, 38% as a team they shot from the field. 27% from the three-point line. They were just chucking up shots. They were unable to get into a rhythm. Miami bullied them from beginning to end. You know what the crazy part is? The best player on Miami was Duncan Robinson. That's because he was 8 of 9 from the three-point line. He was a literal flamethrower. And the next closest scorer behind him was Jimmy Butler with 21 and 6. So it wasn't like somebody popped off for 50. They just had a couple of players go off for a good chunk of change. So when those confident players like Jimmy Butler, like Bam Adebayo, like Kyle Larry, they get into that kind of confident role or they get into that uh, that zone, as some shooters and some, play- some players like to call it, it's going to be scary. I think that this series ends up being a rout. I mean, even if Trey has to come out and drop 40 a night, they still need other players to step up outside of just Trey Young. And it looks like Miami's got the formula. Um, you know, make Trey Young's life a living hell. Uh, get physical with him at the top of the key. Make sure that he he passes out of some complicated shots or, you know, make sure that whatever shots he is taking, they're always contested. So um, I think Miami's in a good place right now. But, yeah, no, Trey Young's performance today, I wouldn't say it's, it's, it's panic mode, but it's definitely concerning if they were able to figure out one of the better players in the NBA this quickly in a four-game series. Yeah, I think when I look at this from kind of a bigger perspective, I think this was just a fluke. I don't think this is a thing of a sign of things to come uh, just because, I mean, looking through Trey's playoff history at this current moment in time, this is probably his worst playoff performance that I've ever seen. And to score eight points, and I even cracked double digits as the leader and the focal point of the team. This is not a good look. I, I mean, Kevin, I mean, would you say one of 13? One of 12. One of 12, excuse me. I don't want to criticize him too hard there, but that's under 10%. It, it just, and you know what? Granted, it's game one. I don't like to be too prisoner in the moment, um, you know, when it comes to a game one, but obviously they need better from Trey Young, and it's pretty easy for me to say that just because, you know, when I look at Atlanta, you know, they, they got into the playoffs by making their way through the play-in tournament, but it was really by and large due to what Trey Young was able to do. And to me, like when I look back at that Cleveland game um, in that last play-in tournament that they had, Trey struggled throughout the first half of that game, but he really started stepping up in the second half where he just took over the game, scored over 30 points in the second half, and Cleveland had no answer. And when I look at this game in particular against Miami, Miami, I wouldn't necessarily consider a very strong one seed. Granted, they are a one seed, which you know does deserve respect. But in totality, you know the Heat aren't the strongest one seed I've ever seen in the Eastern Conference. 
but they looked like world beaters against Atlanta in that game one matchup. And it was really just because they they had Trey basically in clamps the entire game. And I think what Atlanta has to do going into game two, just to kind of switch things up, give Miami a different look, and they have to create space for Trey to be able to navigate and get some space to knock some shots down. Because when Trey gets into a rhythm, he's a very exciting player to watch. It's just in game one, he was just nowhere to be found. And when I look at Atlanta's playoff chances, it's really kind of all dependent on what Trey is able to do because Trey is really the spark that kind of gets this team going. And then usually you'll see some role players step up like Donovich could get hot if Trey's knocking down shot opens up the floor for everybody else. I had to see what happens with John Collins because John Collins is coming back from an injury. So he's still a little bit rusty. I need Danilo Gallinari to step up a little bit more. Kevin Herter has to knock down more shots when he gets open looks. But just in this game one, I, I just the Hawks had no answers. I mean, for God's sakes, the first three quarters as a team, they scored 60 points. You're not going to win basketball games like that, especially when you're on the road playing a one-seeded team like the Miami like the Miami Heat. So, overall, they got some work to do. Trey Young definitely is going to have to play better if Atlanta has any sort of shot to make this series competitive with Miami. Kevin, it's like you said, this series is like it's going to be a route, but I think at this point, I, I, I think when it comes to Trey Young, I think Trey is going to improve uh, from this game one performance. I don't think he can get any worse unless he goes literally 0 of 12 from the field, which I don't see happening. So I do expect a much more competitive game from Atlanta in game two. Um, overall, Trey Young, I think, will probably score some around like 25, maybe even 30 points. I think he's going to get hot. I think he's going to make it interesting uh, for Atlanta. But Trey's got to get it going because if he doesn't, Atlanta's chances to move to the second round are basically slim to none. That's just how I see it. We all know that Trey Young has the ability to, to 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 light up an offense. We know that he has the ability to just completely uh, make a defense look foolish, and we all know that he's got the range to pull from pretty much anywhere on the floor. But when you combat a, a very good team like Miami and you shoot yourself out of the game early, it's very hard to get into a rhythm and get back into a game, especially when you're incapable of stopping them on the other end. So... Atlanta's got a lot to focus on. Atlanta's got a whole lot to figure out what it is they're going to do. A lot of people need to step up. A lot of defensive settings need to change. And we definitely need to understand where they're going to go in game two and what direction they're going to go. Because if Trey goes cold like that again, we're in th- Atlanta, we already know, is losing this series. If it goes 2-0, it's, it's, it's going to be a long, long trip home for Atlanta, period. Yeah, and I will say this. I, I didn't expect... Uh, Miami to beat them down like that, but if Miami is looking that good already, especially if they can knock down shots behind the three point line, that that's a big aspect for Miami. If they're able to knock down those three point shots consistently, that at least gives my Miami a much better competitive look moving forward. But Atlanta, they 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 really got to get it together. I mean, they looked pretty good in the playing games, but these playing games are not the same as going up against a number one seeded team like the Heat. So they definitely got some work uh, ahead of them as far as I'm concerned. Now, with, sure. that, now with that said, we're going to transition to our last segment. So we're going to talk a little bit about some football here. Uh, we get to talk about Kevin's team a little bit. So we're going to talk about Stephon Gilmore signing. 
with the Colts. But Gilmore signed a two-year deal with the Colts last week. Um, I believe that news came out on Friday, so we already had recorded a, uh, an episode um, before that news had broke. So we are a little bit late on getting to this topic, but I think this definitely does uh, need a mention just because, you know, when you add Stephon Gilmore to a, a pretty stout defense overall, Indy's defense now has an all-pro at the cornerback position, the linebacker position, and at their front four. So this is going to be an interesting uh, piece to add to Colts to a pretty stout Colts defense. Now, Kevin, to kick this one to you, with Stephon Gilmore signing with the Colts, just how impactful do you think he's going to be for the Colts next season? I think that he's everything that we need um, from that standpoint. We need a lockdown corner. We need somebody that can guard the best receiver on the opposite side. We need somebody that can can shut down a, uh, an offensive player. We need somebody that they, they fear to throw to. We all know that he's a former defensive player of the year. We all know that he is one of the better corners at getting his hand in the passing lane in one season. And if I'm not mistaken, his defensive player of the year, uh, year he had 20 passes deflected, which is big, always hanging in the cookie jar, breaking things up. Not necessarily known for his interceptions, uh, but he has been known to at least make some big plays, at least, like I said, in breaking passes up, forcing some other turnovers, uh, some deflections. But, you know, you pair him, Roddy McLeod, Darius Leonard, um, obviously DeForest Buckner and Gakwe, who we just also signed. You know, when Julian Blackman comes back, Carl, Carl, oh my God, Kari Willis, Isaiah Rogers, an up-and-coming corner. It's going to be a very, very good defense. Um, I think that he is the missing piece that we've needed in the secondary for quite some time. Rockison was young. He was getting better, but he was definitely still making some rookie mistakes at times. Xavier Rhodes was great when we had him for those two years, but he unfortunately caught the injury bug uh, last season, which brings me to my final point with Gilmore. He needs to stay healthy. In his last two years, he has not played a full season of football. Uh, his last year in New England, only played 11 games. Last year, he only started three games for Carolina, and he only played eight games all season. So I'm looking at this, and I'm saying we got a great player. We got him for a solid price. We got the potential to have an all-pro caliber corner. This is going to be his 10th year. He has had a couple of procedures. He has been injured the past couple of years. So, I mean, we will see how much he can produce. We will see how much is left in the tank, so to speak, for him. But I am happy with the signing. Uh, once again, I'm apologizing. I find myself apologizing to Ballard because we didn't jump into the immediate hype of free agency. And we picked up some great veteran pieces in this offseason. And obviously, this is just the icing on the cake, picking up one of the better corners, if not the best corner available on the market outside of J.C. Jackson, of course. So um, I'm happy with the move. Can't really say much else. And uh, I'm just looking forward to see what we do in the draft. And hopefully, we're able to... Uh, Draft some receivers for Matt Ryan. We all know that this defense and Gus Bradley are, are, are working to get the right personnel here, but we addressed the pass rush situation right off the bat with Ngakwe. We got the corner. Now we just got to make sure that we get healthy, we get some weapons on offense, and we should be good to go to make a run at, uh, if, if anything, at least the division title, but hopefully a little bit more than that. I mean, Kevin, there's not really much left for me to add. I think you pretty much knocked everything out that I could really say. Uh, really kind of the biggest thing that I'll, that I'll just kind of mention before uh, we wrap this up is just um, is the injury aspect because um, he had a pretty significant quad injury. 
his last year with New England that pretty much sidelined him uh, for the last, I would say, quarter of the season and um, and definitely impacted him going into uh, this past season uh, where he was able to get some time with the Carolina Panthers. I mean, Kev, I mean, when you add Stephon Gilmore, I mean, you're adding an all-pro corner where the guy was just an absolute beast when he played with New England uh, during his tenure there. Um, this man needs to be respected. And I think what he brings to Indy is going to be, you know, a stout cornerback. Is he going to be as good as what he was in New England? Time will tell on that. I think he still has all the ability to go out there and do it. The biggest point with me is whether or not that he could stay healthy. But I know what Stephon Gilmore brings to the table. He's an elite cornerback uh, that definitely deserves a lot of attention from opposing wide receivers. So I think all in all, this was a good move by Indy. Um, I kind of say it like to Kevin just as like a fun little joke that we have like a running joke back and forth. Chris Ballard does it again. Ballard's able to make these these moves um, in impeccable fashion. And I think to be able to bring in uh, Stephon Gilmore on the price tag that they were able to get him on, uh, that's solid for Indy moving forward. And, and it's like you, I mean, it's like what we mentioned earlier. You have an all pro at the cornerback spot, linebacker spot, and now on your front four. I mean, this is. This is a defense that can definitely make some noise going into next year. And I'll tell you what, you have a good defense to go along with what you have on the offensive side of the ball. Make some things happen, Kev. I don't know if they're gonna have, I don't know if they're gonna win a division title. I'm not gonna say that, you know. I, I that may be a bridge too far for me at this point, but uh, the Colts definitely look like a much more well rounded team going into next year compared to this past season. So granted, I'm not the Colts sure. fan, you are, but I think this is a team that is definitely going to be on people's radars going into next year. Hopefully. Colts, bro. Always got something. Always something with it. You ain't lying. But Kev, I think, uh, I think we've not done all, all the uh, topics, my guys. You, uh, you ready to wrap this up? Sir, yes, sir. It is uh, early, early, early Monday morning, so it is definitely time for us to get some shut-eye. Uh, some of us have work in the morning. Thankfully, one of us is off, Mr. Working almost 10 days in a row, so enjoy the time tomorrow, my friend. I will. I will, but you know me. Be busy knocking this, uh, knocking out the segments for tomorrow, so it'll be fun for me, but, you know, get to sleep in a little bit, just a little bit. Enjoy the rest, bro. You deserve it. You work hard, just like the rest of us. Hey, bro. Gotta put the time in, you know? But, uh, but yeah, um, you know, with that said, you guys, uh, that'll pretty much wrap it up from here. Um, if you guys enjoyed uh, our content today, definitely appreciate you guys tuning in. Uh, whether you were listening to us on the audio platforms or watching us on YouTube, uh, we definitely appreciate these. We definitely appreciate the support. Um, going into this week, um, there's going to be a lot of NBA content uh, that we're going to have to focus on this week. So don't be surprised if we drop a segment or two throughout the week before we drop another episode at the end of the week, just because. There's going to be a lot of NBA news just going on, just based off the uh, the playoff games that are currently going in uh, really these first-round series. So definitely stay tuned for that. Uh, as far as our next episode, it's pretty much going to be pr- predominantly NBA-driven, uh, very similar to what we had to um, the format today. But that's pretty much what we have on the slate for the rest of the week. I've got nothing more to say. Kevin, you can take it from here. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen... We appreciate, excuse me, everything we've gotten lately. All social media platforms are absolutely popping off lately. 
YouTube's looking good. Twitter's going crazy. Obviously, Instagram can be worked on. Um, our first TikTok hopefully will be uploaded tomorrow. We're going to kind of chop it up, break up some things that we're working on today, some, same, some things we talked about. So if you guys want to follow that, that should be the at name. What is it? Uh, at the neighborhood pod. It, it, it's at neighborhood podcast or neighborhood underscore podcast. That'll be the uh, tag name for our profile. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll put it. We'll, we'll put we'll it in the description. Up. Yeah, we'll. Uh, Kevin can throw it up on on, on Twitter. Um, I'll start putting it on some of our. Um, I'll start putting it in the uh, the um, on the info tags uh, for our descriptions and our YouTube videos. So I'll definitely have that marked. Um, but you know, just 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 wanted to show you guys. You know, we're, we're taking that next step. We all know that TikTok is the hottest sensation in terms of social media, especially with up and coming podcasts, um, sports clips, uh, Call of Duty, whatever have you. Everybody's all over TikTok. So we figured why not expand our presence to another platform. But again, like I said, everything's grown. We're having a great time. We're having fun. But uh, without further ado, let's enjoy some more NBA basketball. Let's have a great start to the week tomorrow. And we'll be seeing you guys again later this week. Yep. And with that said, uh, we'll see you guys when we see you late. When when we... That's how you know it's it's getting it's getting late. I'm fucking stumbling over my words, bro. It's getting late. Uh, but with that said, uh, just appreciate you guys tuning in, and uh, we'll see you guys later this week. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 years of music with 50-year-old white guys. Electric acid. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric acid.